Uh, if you've joined us since the start of our time together this afternoon, whether here in person or online, uh, I just want to extend a welcome to you. Uh, my name is Owen, uh, and I'm going to be speaking today for a while from Luke's Gospel and chapter 11 through into chapter 12, verse 12. So we're starting in chapter 11, verse 14, all the way through to chapter 12, 12. Uh, if you've been with us over the last weeks, you will be aware uh, that we are in the middle of a series called On the Road with Jesus, where we're walking together through the New Testament book of Luke and just observing the life of Jesus as he travels from place to place. And right now he's on the road to Jerusalem where he will go to the cross uh, on our behalf. And on that journey, Jesus encounters all these different people. And we see as we read in the book of Luke how he interacts with them, how he engages with them, how he addresses their issues, how he brings freedom and wholeness and forgiveness to them. And, and in the verses we're going to read today, uh, we're going to see and, and observe as Jesus claims to be the only way to relationship with God, as Jesus kind of claims of himself this kind of exclusivity that he is the only way into relationship with God. And we're also going to see what he has to say to those who are more concerned with looking good than actually doing good, who are more concerned with what people think of them than what God has to say about them. Uh, and so we're going to read together. I want to encourage you, if you've got a Bible, please do open it up and read along. Uh, as I say, we're starting in Luke 11, verse 14. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry too much. The words will come up on the screen for you to follow along. But I'd always encourage you to look it up for yourself if you have one. So let's begin. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, so we're not going to kind of spend a long time over introduction. We're going to get straight into it. And the way we'll do this is we'll kind of read a few verses, pause, seek to understand and apply what we've just read, and then move on until we get all the way through to chapter 12, verse 12. So I'm just going to pray quickly, and then we'll read. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to, to understand it and to apply it in our lives today. We say, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you cause your word to live for us today? Would you cause it to be uh, alive? Would you cause it to, to take root in our hearts, that it would bear fruit in our lives in this week and the weeks ahead? Lord, we just want to come to you now and say we submit to you, Lord. We submit to the truth of your word. Would you speak to us as we read it now? For your glory we ask. Amen. Good. Well, let's read from 11 verse 14. Now he, that's Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So we jump straight in. At this point, Jesus has just taught his followers about prayer, which we looked at, Dave shared with us last week. And immediately after this teaching about prayer, we get this account where Jesus uh, comes to a man who is under the oppression of uh, a demonic force of evil that has caused him to be mute, that he's unable to speak. And Jesus brings this man freedom. He casts the demon out and people respond in different ways. We see like lots of people were impressed. They were like, wow, that's cool. The guy couldn't speak and now he can. Like, I haven't seen that before. That's pretty amazing. But not everyone was happy. Some people were undecided uh, and they wanted to see more before they'd make their minds up about Jesus. They, they wanted to test him. They wanted him to prove himself to them. His teaching wasn't enough for them. What they had seen so far wasn't enough. They wanted more. They wanted another dramatic sign. And there are lots of people 
like this today. They, they want the dramatic signs and displays of power. What they can find out about Jesus through God's word or what they can uh, enjoy in relationship with him through prayer and through reading the scriptures isn't sufficient for them. They, they want a dramatic power thing that they can kind of look at and go, see, that's, oh, that must prove that God's real. That's a dramatic thing. I spoke to someone uh, like this a little while ago. He said, there's just, there's not enough zap for me. Like, where's all the zap? <laughs> I thought, well, anyway, there are people who had that kind of attitude with Jesus in this moment. And Jesus is going to address them in, in just a bit, and we'll see what he has to say to them. But there were also some who suggested Jesus' power to cast out demons was demonic, that, that it came from the devil. They said he, he does it by Beelzebub. These people can't deny that Jesus has power. They've just seen him cast a demon out. They can't deny that Jesus has authority. And so what they seek to do instead is to discredit him and stop people from following him. But this is plainly a crazy idea. And Jesus like brilliantly demolishes it. And we read on. We read this from verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided itself against itself is laid to waste, and a divided household falls. If Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? You say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, who do your sons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus just very quickly and simply shows the, the complete flaw in their argument of saying, oh, it's, it's by the power of the devil that he's doing this. It's by demonic power. Because he basically just says, why would Satan undermine Satan's work? That doesn't make any sense. Like, why would darkness fight against darkness? Why would the demonic cast out the demonic? It just makes no sense whatsoever. It's a crazy thing to suggest. The divided kingdom, Jesus says, will, will collapse. It can't stand. It just wouldn't make any sense. And then Jesus goes on, in any case, to ask, well, he points out, who, who do your sons? There were Jewish priests who conducted exorcisms, who cast demons out from people. And Jesus says, well, like, if you think I'm doing it by the power of demons, who, like, on whose authority are they doing it? Like, he just points out their double standards. He's like, how are you okay for them to do it and not question on whose authority? But when it's me, you say it's demonic. Is it just, you guys are talking crazy. But Jesus then wants to underline on whose authority he is acting, or on whose authority... He has come to cast out demons. He says, doesn't he? But if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, the implication being it is by the hand of God, the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, Jesus has come to bring about the kingdom of God. He's already declared that multiple times in Luke's gospel as we've worked through together. He's come to bring about God's rule and reign on earth and he drives out demons he says by the finger of god and this is this is a really beautiful expression like it sounds kind of quirky to us you think by the finger of god it sounds a bit kind of weird um but it's an amazing one actually it's this picture of the the, the father and son jesus and his heavenly father being so united that as jesus works it is that as though god himself is at work god's hand is at work. This expression, the finger of God, we find a few times in the Old Testament. Uh, and, and one of the most notable occasions is in Egypt, where Moses goes to Pharaoh and takes this message from God, let my people go. The, the people of God are being held captive, just like this man was held captive to demonic uh, oppression. The people of God are held captive in Egypt under Pharaoh and Moses goes to them and says, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh hardens himself. He says, no, 
I won't do it. And so God sends these signs, these plagues on Egypt to cause Pharaoh to turn around and to release his people. And on one occasion with this uh, plague of gnats that is released on the land of Egypt, Pharaoh turns to his kind of conjurers, the people in his, his court who perform signs for him. And he's like, you do it. Like, prove that there's nothing special about Moses. There's nothing inherently powerful about him that you can't also do. And the, the kind of court conjurers come back to him with this expression. And they say in Exodus 8, 19, they turn to him and they say, no, no, this is the finger of God. In other words, this, this isn't witchcraft. This isn't some kind of cheap trick. This is the work of God himself. And Jesus kind of takes that idea as he casts out the demons, as he brings freedom to people from captivity. And he says, this is, this is God's work. This is the finger of God. And then Jesus gives us a great picture to help us understand and to help his first listeners understand what's going on that this isn't the case of a divided kingdom, but instead this is a very one-sided fight. And he says this, we read from verse 21. He says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Jesus uses this picture of a a strong man in his house who feels like he's safe and secure and has got his stuff secure and uses it as an illustration of what's going on spiritually. Satan is the strong man in this picture who has lots of treasure in his house that he's guarding. And actually the people who Jesus has come to set free are like the possessions in Satan's household. Those who he has enslaved and held captive through their sin and shame and who are subject to demonic oppression. And unless someone stronger than the strong man, unless someone stronger than the devil comes along, then they will never be delivered. They're held fast within his house. But... When one stronger comes along, then the treasure can be liberated. Jesus uses this picture to show us what he has come to do. He's effectively saying that that he is the one who is more powerful than the strong man. He is the one who is more powerful than Satan. He has come to stroll into the devil's house, to overpower him and walk off with his stuff. He has come to liberate people from the oppression of being captive to sin and shame. He's the one who's come to liberate people from captivity to the devil and demonic forces. That's what Jesus is teaching us with this picture. See, the devil has authority in this world. We need to be aware of that fact. He has authority in this world because of people's sin Through people's sin and rebellion against God, the devil has authority. He's like the strong man that has this household. But Jesus came, infinitely more powerful, to overpower him and to bring people into freedom. Just like he'd done for the mute man in this story and just like he's done for every single person who puts their trust in him and finds forgiveness in him. So with this illustration, Jesus kind of peels back the curtain, I guess, in a way, for us to to see what's really going on in the world around us, what's really going on spiritually. It's like he kind of lifts off the veneer and goes, guys, this this is what it's like, right? And he follows it then by saying, we read from verse 23, he says, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
after giving us this picture of the, the strong man who would be overpowered by Jesus, who would bring freedom for people, Jesus basically says the whole world is polarized spiritually. He says there is no neutral territory. There is no kind of in-betweeny place. You're either in the strong man's house, held captive in sin and death, or you are free and forgiven through Christ Jesus. There is no middle ground. You can't be kind of like halfway in, halfway out. You can't be on the fence. There is no neutrality to this. There is no gray. You're either with Jesus or you're against Jesus. It's one or the other, Jesus says here. It's as stark as that. And when we understand that it's as stark as that, that lens actually helps us to see the world as it really is and helps us to see what's going on. You see, we can often use all kinds of lenses when we look at people, but Jesus almost kind of puts some different lenses on us when he helps us to see the world in this way, to recognize that it doesn't actually matter how wealthy or attractive or talented someone is or how together they seem to have it. And it also doesn't matter how much they appear in need or in a mess. See, their appearance on the surface actually is not the most significant thing about people's ultimate need. Because apart from Jesus, all, apart from Jesus, every single lost one of us, apart from Jesus, is held captive to the devil. And whether they know it or not, they are in desperate need of rescue. It doesn't matter how together their life appears, how good their career is, how secure their marriage, how affluent they are, or all those other things that we look at as kind of metrics of how well someone is doing, Jesus says, whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather to me scatters. Whoever is not set free by me is held captive in the strong man's house. There is no middle ground. And then he illustrates further we read from verse 24, he kind of carries on unpacking this kind of picture and this language. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Jesus uses this picture to help us again understand there is no spiritual vacuum. There is no neutral. Either God is your father or Satan is your master. It's one or the other. See, Jesus brings freedom when he breaks the chains that hold us captive. But if you fail to respond to him, if you fail to respond in a life of repentance and obedience, then actually you continue in darkness. If you hear and ultimately reject the gospel, you hear and you fail to obey God's word, then that leaves you in a very sorry state. In this picture, it's like, Jesus has purchased freedom from you. He's come and brought you out from the strong man's house, made it possible for you to have freedom. But if you don't actually accept that and follow with him, then you're going to be in a right old mess. We read on from verse 27. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which, at which you nursed. See, this woman clearly is excited about what Jesus has just said. She grasps the significance of what he's talking about. 
of the fact that he has come to bring freedom for people, release from captivity. She, she gets enough of it to kind of want to just shout out. It's like a, 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 like a first century amen almost. She's like she's shouting out from the crowd like, preach it, Jesus. But the, she kind of misses the point a little bit as she does as well. Because as, as she does, as she gets excited about what he's saying, it's like she goes, it's like, wow, Jesus, you're amazing. Like Mary, your mom was so blessed to carry you. She's so special. And in that moment, she kind of weirdly elevates Mary as she kind of wants to, yes, Jesus, you're brilliant. What you're saying is true. And Jesus doesn't amen her back. I don't think for a moment that, it's, that Jesus had any kind of low view of his mother. In fact, I'm convinced from Scripture that he honoured her greatly and loved her dearly. That you see as he hung on the cross, that he ensured in that moment that she was cared for and provided for as he asked one of his disciples to, to take her as though she were his own mother and to care for her. So he's not kind of belittling Mary in this moment, but, but he doesn't amen her back. Instead, he uses it as an opportunity to talk about real blessing, to talk about what really counts. And he's like, you might think it was an amazing privilege or a blessing to be Mary, the mother of Christ. But then Jesus says, no, in verse 28, but he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and who keep it. Jesus says true blessedness is, is actually hearing scripture, hearing the word of God, taking it to heart and obeying it, living it out, allowing it to affect your behavior, allowing it to change the way you view the world, allowing it to change your response to God. He instantly turns the woman's attention away from Mary to God's word and how we should respond to it. And then, having just spoken there about the importance, the blessedness that comes from responding to God's word in this way, of, of living in obedience to it, Jesus then comes back to address the people who were after a sign. So you've got to notice the flow of what happens here, right? Jesus has just said, blessed are those who hear God's word and keep it or obey it, or like live in the good of it, live in the light of it. And then he's going to come back to talk about the people who were after a sign, who wanted him to keep doing cool things that were impressive. And uh, this isn't a one-off for Jesus, the way he responds to them in a moment we're going to read but actually elsewhere in Luke chapter 16 we get the story that Jesus tells about Lazarus and the rich man and in, in that story the rich man claims that that if his brothers saw someone come back from the dead then they would repent and believe in God he's like look if you would just send this guy back to go and talk to my brothers then they'd believe then they'd repent then they would live in obedience to God and and Jesus tells us in the story, he says, no, that, that simply isn't the case. He, he actually says, they have scripture. They have the words of the law and the prophets of Moses and Abraham. That should be sufficient for them. If they don't believe on the basis of scripture, if they don't respond to God on the basis of God's word, if they aren't those who, what Jesus has just said, are blessed because they hear the word and keep it, then actually no dramatic sign, not even someone coming back from the dead will convince them otherwise. Which I think is interesting, isn't it? Because sometimes we can be inclined to think like, if God would just heal that person, then they'd become a Christian. Or if God would just do this thing, then they'd believe. Or if, if we could just see, then they would be convinced. And sometimes, amazingly, God does use those things to speak to people. But actually, what Jesus had to say was the most significant thing is 
that you hear his word and respond to it. Anyway, we read on from verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, we could spend a long time just kind of unpacking this little bit. We're going to very quickly broad brush. Jesus says to this group who want a sign that he is right there in front of them to see. He's like, you're looking for a sign. You want me to do these things, but I'm here. He highlights how scripture pointed forward to his coming and what he would do. That scripture pointed forward to him and now here he is living before these people and yet they want him to prove himself to them with another sign. Do another thing, Jesus. Do another party trick so that we'd be convinced. And Jesus uses these two Old Testament accounts and basically says that both of them are really about him, that both of them pointed forward to him. With these words, Jesus teaches, actually, that if we read our Bibles well, then we're reading about him, that he saw in the story of Jonah a, a, a sign, a pointing forward to himself, to his own life, death, and resurrection, that as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, that Jesus would be in the belly of the earth, crucified for three days, and then would rise again, that people might find forgiveness, just as Jonah preached a message of repentance when he came out from the whale, and the people of Nineveh found forgiveness as they repented. And with the queen of the south, who came to seek wisdom from King Solomon, Jesus is basically saying that anyone who knows the scriptures would understand that he himself is wisdom personified, that the wisdom of Solomon was just a, a foretaste of the wisdom of God, which is ultimately now revealed in the person of Jesus, that one greater than Solomon is standing before them. And without skipping a beat from that, Jesus then declares... No one, from verse 33, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Jesus is having just talked about himself as the sign, having just said these things point forward to me. He then goes on to basically say that Jesus, the true light of the world, has come. The greater Jonah, the full revelation of God's wisdom, the one who would overpower the strong man, which is right back where we started, the one who would bring freedom to captives. He's saying, guys, you don't need another sign. I'm right here. It's not hidden. I'm like a light on a stand on display for all of you to see. I've come to bring the kingdom of God here. The question is, will you receive him? He goes on from verse 34 to say to them, after declaring that he's the light, he says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light looking on the light of Christ beholding him in his glory makes all the difference but ignoring or overlooking him is a grave mistake and will leave you in darkness 
I'm aware that some of these phrases that Jesus uses are kind of complex, and we're covering a lot of ground today. What we're trying to do is just get the broad sweep of the theme that he threads through these series of interactions. So don't get too caught up um, on some of the detail. We could talk about that another time if you want to, but I'm aware there's some kind of quirky phrases in there, but we just don't have time to dig into them all. I wish we did, but we'd be here till midnight at least. Um, While he was speaking, we read from verse 37, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. And so Jesus went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And you might be shocked too that Jesus didn't wash before dinner. You're like, has he not learned? Like hand hygiene? I mean, COVID and everything. I mean, we've got to wash our hands like all the time for at least the length of happy birthday. (laughs) This is not actually talking about hand hygiene here, (laughs) but ceremonial washing before eating. This kind of washing that the Pharisee expected Jesus to do before he reclined at the table to eat was a, a sign of ritual cleanness before God. It It wasn't actually required by Old Testament law. It wasn't something that God had said that they should do, but it was cherished and valued by the Pharisees. For the Pharisee to do that was a sign of purity before God. But for Jesus, and we're going to get onto this now, it was just an example of how people had added to God's law and created more hoops for people to jump through to be able to come to God and more ways for the Pharisees, the religious elite, to just show everyone how holy they were. Jesus uses this then to talk to the Pharisee about hypocrisy, the kind of hypocrisy that this washing, this outward cleansing typified. We read from verse 39, And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms to those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Jesus picks up on the fact this Pharisee is shocked that he didn't go through this ritual washing before dinner and says you and this ritual washing are like cleaning the outside of a cup and leaving the dirty filthy stinking and moldy and then taking a swig of water from it it's crazy you might well be clean on the outside but your heart is full of sin Jesus is saying this Pharisee and of the Pharisees that that on the outside they gave the appearance of being holy. They had the the veneer of holiness that people looked at them and thought, wow, they are just amazing. Their life is so exemplary. They're so holy. But in reality, their hearts were full of pride and full of greed and full of selfish ambition. And then Jesus launches out from that point of saying, you might look good, but you're messed up on the inside. You might look like you're free, but you're one of those who's held captive in the strong man's house. In reality, when you get under the surface on the outside, you might look like you gather with me, but actually you scatter. And Jesus launches out from this point into a scathing critique of the Pharisees and the experts or teachers in the law We read this, and it's pretty full on. I would not want Jesus to say this to me. We read from verse 42, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees. For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves 
and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him. I'm like, this guy was an idiot, right? When Jesus is in takedown mode, pointing out people's hypocrisy, you keep your head down <laughs> if you've got any sense. But this lawyer answered him. He says, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And it's almost like Jesus goes, yeah, and here's some more. <laughs> he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. There's, there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. Essentially, what Jesus is saying to them is that in the public arena, they're doing some good stuff. But it's not actually out of a generous heart. It's not out of a concern for justice or provision for the poor, or actually even a love of God. It's all out of a love of self, out of pride, out of arrogance, out of a desire for the accolades of people. It's a, it's a box-ticking exercise born out of a desire to be respected and honored and well thought of by others. They look for the best places for themselves, the promotion, the limelight, they're not there actually to serve, but instead looking for people to serve them. They want everybody to think that they're holy, that they have it all together. But under the surface, they're riddled with sin, driven by ugly and selfish motives. And so deep is the problem, so profound their guilt in this, that Jesus says to them that they are like unmarked graves. Now, it's important to pick up on that one because it's such a serious thing to say because in Jewish thinking, contact with a dead person would make you unclean. That's a big issue. You've then got to go through a whole process of purification. And so graves needed to be marked clearly so that people could avoid them, so as to not become unclean. And Jesus is saying, you are such a mess that you are like an unmarked grave. You don't even have the warning of death on you. So people unwittingly come into contact with you and come under your influence as though they stumble across an unmarked grave. And as they come under your teaching and your influence, as they get alongside you, you lead them away from God. You lead them into sin just as you are in sin. You lead them from God and into death. It's a serious accusation. It's true. And to the scribes and teachers of the law, Jesus says to them, I don't know if you read that bit about the key, if you noticed that as we went through, that God's word is supposed to be like a key that opens the door. And shows people how they can come into relationship with God. It's supposed to allow us to see how we can relate to God. How we can find life and freedom in Him. But instead, through their teaching and the additions they made. And the hoops they caused people to jump through. Like this washing that Jesus didn't do before dinner. And many, many other things. They had made the key inaccessible. So that people couldn't see how they could come to God. Instead, it was just barrier after barrier after barrier after barrier. And for all their understanding, they hadn't even taken the key and opened the door for themselves. 
They're hypocrites. They live in fear of people's opinion. They want to be well-liked, but on the inside, they're just a total mess. And as the crowds gather round, Jesus addresses then primarily his disciples, his followers, and he warns them. And as he does, he warns us. And I want you to hear this today because I'm sure as we just read about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, all of us kind of like to distance ourselves from them. And we go, that is terrible that people would do that, that people would be like that. Give a good British tup. They shouldn't do that. But Jesus says this from 12 verse 1, In the meantime, when many thousands of the people had gathered together, that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Beware the leaven or yeast of the Pharisees. Yeast gets everywhere in the dough. It it affects the whole loaf. He's saying this kind of hypocrisy, this kind of people-pleasing rather than God-honoring, this kind of desire to be well-liked and well-loved and yet behind closed doors to be living selfish and shameful lives gets everywhere. Check yourselves. Can you see it in your own life? And if you can't, I want to suggest that maybe you're not being very honest with yourself. Maybe some of you can relate to some of this. Maybe you look good on the outside. Perhaps on Sundays, even you serve, you worship, you lift your hands, you give. Perhaps you're even involved in leadership in some way. But you're harboring hidden sin. You're looking at things you know you shouldn't. Your eyes are darkened. You're indulging fleshly appetites. Lust and greed drive you forward. Selfish ambition fuels your day-to-day. Behind closed doors, you harbor bitterness about others. When you think they can't hear you, you bitch and slander and tear down to make yourself look good by comparison. not so different from the Pharisees. We're in trouble. Jesus declares that what you do and say in secret will be uncovered. So he said, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever you've whispered in private will be proclaimed from the housetops. God sees and knows, and one day it will be brought out into the light. Sobering, right? There's no hiding, ultimately. There's no getting away with anything in the end. This is sobering. This is a stark warning to watch our lives, to live consistent with what we profess to believe. And with that warning echoing in our ears, with that warning kind of ringing out, Jesus goes on to give us the antidote to our hypocrisy. Because if we're honest, we all feel it. We all know the content of our hearts, our lives. We know what we do behind closed doors when we think no one else can see. Jesus gives us an antidote to our hypocrisy. He says this from verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. After that, they have nothing more they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God, why even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Essentially, Jesus says we need to fear the right thing. That's, that's the antidote to our hypocrisy. 
Christians in many places live with the legitimate fear of serious persecution, of excommunication from their families, maybe even torture or death for following Jesus. But Jesus says here, even those who have the ability to kill you, even those who might cut you off from the family, even those who might torture you for professing your faith in Jesus are not actually to be feared. Instead, there is something much, much more deserving of our fear, our hypocrisy being exposed, our secret sins being brought out into the light, not because of how ashamed we'll feel when other people know what we're really like, not because we'll be embarrassed before people, but because of the implications before a holy God. Jesus says we should have a right fear of God who will give us the justice we deserve for our sins. We should fear the judgment of a holy God who has the authority to condemn us to hell for our sins. Jesus wants to wake us up to the reality that one day we will die and face God. People don't want to seem to talk about hell anymore, which I get, it's not very comfortable. We prefer to focus on the more positive stuff, but Jesus has no qualms whatsoever here in in raising this and talking about it. And in the context of saying that if you're not with him, you're against him, that if you've not been set free by him, then you're captive in the house of the strong man in the context of saying... we may well be hypocritical pointing out the charade of living to impress people and yet ignoring the judgment of a holy God who sees and knows the content of our hearts who knows every word and every deed done in secret Jesus wants us to have a right fear of a holy God but he also wants us to know that the only way out of this judgment that we deserve to face each one of us is to respond to Jesus, the greater Jonah, who came that we might find forgiveness, is to accept his offer of exchange of his life for ours, is to accept this offer of exchange of his righteousness for our sinfulness, is to repent and find forgiveness. And then he rounds out this section by insisting that those who know him, those who found forgiveness in him, those who have a right perspective will tell others about him without fear of persecution we read from verse 8 and i tell you everyone who acknowledges me before men the son of man also will acknowledge before the angels of god but the one who denies me before men will be denied before god and before the angels of god and everyone who speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven but the one who blasphemes against the holy spirit will not be forgiven And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what to say. Jesus points out in rounding this off that those who are fearing men instead of fearing God will keep their mouths closed about Jesus. They'll shy away from witnessing they begin again to fear those who can kill their body rather than having a right fear of a holy God. Those who truly fear God, though, and find forgiveness in Jesus will be given the words to witness by the very Spirit of God. That's the promise. We have a choice. We can live to please God or to please people. We can't do both. There is no divided kingdom. So in summary, Jesus has taught us through these series of exchanges what it means to fear God, to have a right fear of God. He began by teaching us to recognize the finger of God, to see the true authority and power of God over sin and death, over Satan and demons. And he went on to 
teach us an integral part of what it means to fear God is to obey his word, knowing that his way is the way of life. And then to fear his judgment, knowing that the only way to escape that righteous judgment is to be found in Christ, forgiven, free. And so as we finish, I want to encourage you to receive the one who has come to lead you out of captivity and into true freedom. To come and again find forgiveness in Christ. And to call others into that too. Don't try to hide your sin. It's forgiveness in Christ, but we need to confess and find forgiveness. Don't try to hide it. Find someone who you can be honest with. Confess, pray, and find forgiveness. See, saving face now is foolishness. It leads to destruction down the road. But honest and humble saving faith in Jesus leads to eternal life. Guys, don't be like the Pharisees. It would be a grave, grave, grave mistake to live this life being well thought of by people being considered holy, but the whole time living in sin and rebellion against God. It would be a grave, grave mistake. You might be well thought of now, but in eternity it will count for nothing. We're going to sing one final song as we conclude our time together. But I want to remind you, as we do and as we come to sing this, that there's a soberness to this. There's forgiveness to be found. There's freedom to be found in Jesus, the one who has come and overpowered the strong man and brought us out of captivity and into liberty. But we need to confess our sins and we need to respond to him and receive that forgiveness. There is no middle ground, Jesus said. Who is not with me is against me. I want to encourage you. You know that maybe you've begun to drift to come back today as we sing this final song to find forgiveness and freedom again in Christ. Yeah? Let's stand together, shall we?